This is Rabbanit Leah Sarna and Rabbi David Walkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to The Straw Hat. We're the official podcast of Anche Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in Chicago, Illinois. This episode, we have two topics we're going to investigate along with our regular interview. Uh, the first topic is going to be a look at Shira Shirim, which will be recited in Shul this uh, coming Shabbat. And the second topic is going to be a discussion about Yuzkor, uh, which will also be said this Shabbat, the eighth day of Pesach, uh, and who stays in and who leaves for Yuzkor. It's kind of a, a strange matching, Shira Shirim and Yizker all in one day. Well, Shabbat is going to be, it'll be a, a strange <laughs> podcast uh, matching and maybe a strange day in shul, but that's how, that's how our calendar works. Okay, so first off, let's talk a little bit about Shira Shirim. I guess we'll be reading that first anyways. Um, so one of the things that, I mean, I personally love Shira Shirim. I have these amazing memories associated with it. Um, my seminary where I learned for a year after high school called Migdal Uz, um, every Friday, we would read Shira Shirim before Kabbalah Shabbat, and the Beit Midrash is full of, it's all windows, it looks out, and that's part of the kind of philosophy and theology of that particular Beit Midrash, that we're like a Beit Midrash where we sit and learn Torah, but we're outward facing. Our sense is that the Torah that's learned here should have an effect on the on the outside world. Um, but what that means on Friday night, when you're sitting in the Beit Midrash reading Shira Shirim, is that the sun is setting, yeah. and you're looking out into the Judean hills and welcoming. Shabbat, and the reason why there's a custom to read Shir Shirim um, on Arab Shabbat regularly is because there's this sense that kind of Shabbat is the expression of love between God and Israel, um, and Shir Shirim is kind of the ultimate expression of that love. Rabbi Akiva describes Shir Shirim as the holy of holies, the Kodesh Kadashim, and his argument for why Shir Shirim should be canonized. Um, but the the argument against Rabbi Akiva for the people who didn't want to canonize to include Shira Shirim and Tanakh is that it's kind of explicit. And so I have all these lovely memories associated with it, and I absolutely love Shira Shirim. And part of what I, I love about it is the, the kind of um, idea that the love between the Jewish people and God should be expressed through ways that humans express love to each other. And that I, I feel like I talk about this a lot, but that, that love for human beings helps us to understand how we should love God. And that if you can't love a human, you definitely can't love God, um, because that's kind of the most intense love that we kind of naturally feel is love between one human and another and therefore we should take the intensity that we can experience in that kind of love and direct that towards God um, and I think Shira Shirim is such an, a, a phenomenal expression of that idea um, but on the other hand it's it's very explicit and so um, in our show many people bring their children to show and um, there's kind of an interesting question of what should we tell our children about this and then also meaning our show uses the stone chumash the art scroll stone chumash and the translation of of Shira Shirim and that uh, Chumash is not a literal translation. No, it is not. Um, we, we use the article Stone Chumash as one of at three or four different options. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I would suspect that even those who prefer the art scroll Chumash, it's a fine Chumash in, in many ways, they don't select it because of its uh, translation, not of Shir Shreem or of anything else for that matter. Uh, but uh, the art scroll, they say very clearly explicitly, if you will, mm-hmm. that there 
uh, method of explaining, explicating Shira Shirim, both in the Siddur, where it's printed uh, before Kabbalat Shabbat, and in the Chumash and the Tanakh, I guess, as well, is based on Rashi, which is based on the Midrash, which sees all of Shirim as an extended allegory uh, describing love between the Jewish people and God. And so all of the um, more um, physical, explicit, all, the, all the references to parts of the body and to romantic uh, encounters in Shira Shirim are uh, allusions to some episode in Jewish history. And, uh, you know, as a, uh, I don't know, I think as a teenager, I thought it was kind of humorous. To, 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 <laughs> it was sort of a fun thing to make fun of, the, you know, the art scroll translation. But it's based, it's a long, long trip. That's Rashi, that's the Midrash. Uh, and that that's one very powerful, um, and that that is possibly why Shia Shreem is included in Tanakh, and, and that is certainly one uh, very, very august and uh, well-credentialed uh, method of understanding the importance of the book, again, as an extended allegory of the story of the Jewish people and our uh, very tumultuous, uh, romantic, uh, uh, intense relationship with God over over the centuries. Uh, Rambam, very, very powerfully, uh, you and I actually uh, read this together, studied this together mm-hmm. on Yom Kippur, mm-hmm. uh, in the 10th uh, chapter of Hilchot Shuvah, describes the love between a person and God and says this should be stronger than any romantic love between two people and Rambam then says and Shir Hashirim is a is a metaphor uh, you know for this for this type of love and, and that's that's actually a very different and also very traditional and well-credentialed uh, you know way to understand the book for Rambam yeah it's a story of a man and a woman or, or maybe uh Two men and, and a woman, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps how you read it, but it's um, it is a story about a very intense, romantic, physical, um, uh, loving relationship, uh, desirous relationship between two people. But that is not the story of the Jewish people. In which case, it has to be allegorized. No, it's about people who love each other, just as human beings even today love each other, and that is supposed to um, uh, shed light on the intensity of our. Of our of the feelings we're supposed to have for God, I um, I may have shared on other occasions a story that my uh, a teacher Rabbi Ebner uh, shared once of a student who was very distracted, a Shiva student of his who was very distracted in Shir, and it seemed he was lovesick. He had a girlfriend. He was thinking about her a lot, and uh, Rabbi Ebner said, "Oh, that's very good," because Rambam says that in in that uh, section of Hilchat Shuva that you know indeed just as somebody who's lovesick you know thinks about the object of his desire all the time and it occupies his yeah. mind, you know, <laughs> you know that's how much we should love God. So he said, if you weren't so lovesick for this. This, this person, it would be a kasha the Rambam. So it makes sense. He said, well, I don't know. If, <laughs> it makes sense. I, I don't know if uh, Rabbi will hear this podcast. Uh, you can let him know if you hear this and know him, or uh, uh, maybe you were that student listening to this podcast yeah. uh, amongst our. But audience. I, I think that reflects something that's so beautiful about like Tanakh and our tradition in general, which is that kind of however you are in the world, you're a person who's like head over heels in love or in a very tumultuous relationship or whatever it is. Like, great. Like, if that's what you're focusing on, then Shira Shirim is for you. Then we have something for you. There's no kind of part of the human experience that goes untouched by the Torah. Um, and so the, I think like in that in, from that perspective, Rabbi Akiva, um, in arguing for the canonization of Shir Hashirim and the inclusion of Shir Hashirim, um, wasn't just saying, yes, this is like a very intense way for humans to understand what their relationship with God should be like, but also in saying like, yes, we should have sex in the Tanakh and there should be kind of open and public discussion of this because there's no part of our lives and there's no part of um of the human experience that's like bad or disgusting or can't be or can't be talked about or that feels should feel shameful like it's so not shameful that we're gonna read about it in beautiful trope 
in Shul on Shabbat morning on Pesach. Yeah, yeah. And I and it's, you had mentioned earlier the concern someone might have of you know bringing kids to Shul and, and what would they find if they turned the Sidor to Shul. Yeah. I think that's actually, uh, just as a parenting strategy, I think that is a... Uh, an opportunity rather than rather than a risk. Um, um, uh, my, my children, when they starting when they're I guess five or so, they start learning uh, chumash with their mother, and uh, we don't skip uh, chapters, we don't skip verses, and, and they encounter all of the uh, various uh, episodes in you know it's the same Rashid and Shmo, you know everything is is there, and they encounter it, and they I think understand it in a way that is appropriate for their age, which means maybe not all that much uh, when they're young, but uh, I don't think there's uh, an educational value in in hiding things, certainly not sections in the Torah, and really it's, it's a great opportunity to introduce really important aspects of human life to our children when we're learning Torah, when they're with their parents, as opposed to picking it up based on rumors, you know, on the playground or whatever. Uh, sure. I think I shared a story from this winter that my daughter was uh, was out outraged that, uh, I guess, when learning about uh, Yosef and uh, Eshet Potiphar in school, that, that uh, there was some, uh, I don't know, sanitized version, uh, G-rated version that had been uh, sought her by the teacher, and she took great offense that she felt the teacher was, like, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know, not, not being true to what the Torah actually says, and so, I was very, you know, which is great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we look forward to reading Shir HaShirim in Shul Shabbat morning. I think we're going to start a little bit early to accommodate all of the various liturgical elements. Um, of Artila and Shabbos. Yeah, actually, another sort of just as, as a kind of coda to the Shir Shirim uh, yeah. conversation to tie it back into Pesach. You can there's a quote from Shir Shirim in uh, in the Haggadah, which is translated in various ways in the various Haggadot. So you can, if you uh, remember uh, from from your Starim, how uh, uh, Shir Shirim is, is utilized and deployed by the Haggadah, and how that is then uh, translated in the various Haggadot. I think it's a oh, and, and also there's a custom to read Shir Shirim after, after the, the Seder night, um, which uh, we might. Do it. The shul say there. My brother and I have been doing this for years. Um, we both really love Shira Shirim and read it at every possible opportunity. So we've been doing it at the Seder night. Usually, usually um, at home while someone does the dishes, the other one reads uh, Shira Shirim. That that's, was my that's, that's nice. When when, uh, <laughs> when Sarah and I uh, work worked on campus, we would you know our Seder would finish in our home at sometime between one and two, and the students would get up and say, "Okay, what's next? Where are we? What, what's what's the next thing tonight?" <laughs> and when we moved to Chicago, you know. Guests would start drifting away at 11, 30, 12, and by the, you know, <laughs> only a few of us, uh, not, not everyone was left at the table when we would finish uh, the Seder, and I don't think any of us uh, We're necessarily ready. had time for Shishri anymore, but uh, <laughs> it's a beautiful custom. Okay, uh, should we talk about Yuskar? Yeah. Okay. I always encourage people to stay in Shul for Yuskar, even those who are blessed with living parents. Uh, and every time that this occurs in the year, I make that pitch. And most of the people blessed with living parents get up and leave. Uh, and uh, I think it's an interesting dynamic. I try not to, you know, I don't, I, don't I, I also make room for that. I say explicitly, if you're blessed with living parents and your parents want you to stay, you know, want, want you to leave and well, don't want you to stay, then, then that's, you should leave and, you know, just do so quickly and quietly. Uh, but it's a curious moment in shul. It's a curious ritual. We don't really have other times in the year when people get up and leave. And and, I th- and the emotions, like, like it elicits very, very strong emotions. Like on the one hand, if you uh, if you want to say Yisker and you miss it, like like that is like a calamity, right? Mm-hmm. And there are people who uh, come to shul for Yisker and you know as like a prime motivator. You know, that's the most important thing that ever is said in mm-hmm. shul is Yisker. And on the other hand, woe to you and the the, the calamity you're bringing upon your family if you uh, mm-hmm. if you stay in when you should leave. And and the words of Yisker itself, it's not like a not particularly mysterious. It's a, essentially a pledge shit in the uh, memory of of the deceased, and it's sort of interesting that it elicits such strong strong emotions. But I would say that um, 
we have a in our show there's often people who are talking during mourners kaddish i would say mm. that is a problem that happens in our show and part of me wishes like those yeah. people would leave you know yeah. like what what if we we considered that like as a mini yisker because i think the people saying mourners kaddish experience it that way like that's a very serious moment for people um and then everyone around them is kind of like schmoozing getting ready for kiddish whatever um sort of if, if the people around them took it as seriously as they do when it's yisker i wonder whether that would actually be yeah, a good that's thing very interesting. I, I had the i had the uh the idea of trying to start a kind of uh, superstitious belief that talking during mourners kaddish is uh you know is a terribly dangerous thing and uh, you know look actually you know the Jewish tradition of the eye and hurrah the evil eye one interpretation of it is um, an activity or a situation where other people are looking at you with jealousy and I think the experience to be in mourning God forbid for a parent for a husband wife son daughter sister brother uh, and to have you know your purported friends you know who are a couple feet from you chatting um, mm-hmm. about what they're going to eat at Kiddush or whatever is um it's nice. certainly the type of behavior that could cause others to look at you with jealousy and anger, which is the definition of the eye and hara, the evil eye mm-hmm. as a concept, as a dangerous concept that exists in Jewish tradition. Uh, so that's certainly one motivator or why people why people leave for Yisker. The idea, like, if you're just going to stand there and have nothing to, to say, that is sort of a painful experience for those who are left, who are mourning parents, etc., that there are their friends and their neighbors and their members of their community are just sort of standing there twirling their thumbs, let alone talking. They, that could arouse uh, jealousy. So a little known fact is that you wouldn't necessarily have nothing to say, meaning anyone who's lost anyone in their lives, whether a grandparent, a great grandparent, uh, you know, a friend who reached 120 or a friend who didn't, you know, unfortunately mm-hmm. didn't reach yeah. 120. There's there's Yitzker that's not specifically for um, relatives, let alone the communal yiskers, by the way, which people really should stay in for and are important. We're saying yisker for people who, you know, don't necessarily have others to say yisker for them. There's a lot of departed members of our synagogue that we pray for. There are, um, you know, d- departed uh, soldiers for Israel, uh, people who died in the Holocaust who might not have any living relatives or or um, or whose entire families were wiped out in the Shoah. We say yisker for them. Uh, those are very important to stay in for. And I, and I think, you know, everyone could find some Someone who you know who passed on. You know, I, I I've been staying in for years. Um, for Yisker, when I was an undergrad, I stayed in. My parents, thank God, are both still alive. When I was an undergrad, I stayed in because there were so few people that if you know if everyone left, there would be like one person in the room alone, and that would be really a terrible experience for that person. And then um, once I started thinking about becoming clay kodesh, I was like, you know, this is something I should probably see what happens in the room for Yisker. Um, and so there's there's people in my life who I always think about. My father. Had had a best friend since childhood who passed away without children. And I think about I think about my grandparents, um, and it's become for me very meaningful. Even though um, even though my parents are, are thank God alive and well. Yeah, I think that that's the flip side. Right, the flip side of the insensitivity of staying in for Yisker with living parents and what are you there for and what do you have to say. The flip side is certainly a young community like ours uh, to have had the misfortune of losing parents at a relatively young age and then to have all of your friends and the people in your demographic, uh, you know, cohort to be getting up and leaving and leaving you behind is it can be very painful and that's uh, that's certainly another reason to stay in so that your people your age and your friend group uh, are not alone. That being said, if it's going to cause distress or fear to your parents, you know, I, I think that has to be balanced. And it's, I think it's an appropriate thing to have a conversation with. I think it's always good to um, talk about, um, import, you know, like, like similar to the first half of, you know, I once read somewhere that uh, sex and death are the existential bookends of life. Uh, and uh, uh, and um, in a very literal way, that's true. And it's also, I think, true in terms of one's like experience uh, as a human being, as an adult. And uh, I, I think it's valuable to have a conversation with your parents if you mm-hmm. have less or living parents to have that conversation. 
conversation. How do they feel about you staying in or leaving during your score? And and, and because you should be talking to your parents about death. Exactly, exactly. And it's, it's uncomfortable, and this could even be an opening. Do they have an advanced directive? What would they, you know, how do they want to die? You could be in a position, if you've never had that conversation, and then something, God forbid, happens to your parents, and you have to make a decision between prolonging your parents' suffering, let's say, and not, what would they want? Wouldn't it help you feel more comfortable in that moment? Obviously, halakha has something to say about that, but even within halakha, there's there's a range of options, and and wouldn't you feel better knowing that you've spoken to your parents about it, and you know what, what kind of medical decision they would make for themselves if they could in that moment? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there's there's just one other piece I wanted to bring up, which is we say yisker on holidays, which is kind of funny. Um, you would think that kind of a holiday where there's an obligation to be happy, um, you might think that yisker would not be an appropriate thing. You know, save yisker for other days when it's okay to be sad. Right. Um, and you, it, you might even be uh, the Sephardi halachic tradition, in fact, uh, <laughs> yeah. that says such things. <laughs> for example. Um, but I do think that um, yisker provides a place for that sadness, meaning people who have experienced these kinds of losses, the hardest days are holidays. Um, you know, events where, yeah. oh, there's never been for me a Pesach without this member of yes, my family, yes, and yes. this year I miss them more than ever. At, at our sea there, um, or at you know, or on Yom Kippur, or whatever it is. What those days are days where you carry, um, you carry real memory and loss um, more than ever. I think. I mean, other than maybe a birthday or something like that. Uh, it, absolutely, and I, and I think the different holidays evoke different kinds of commemoration. Something I often speak about in my brief comments before Yusker throughout the year. Uh, Yom Kippur is a day of existential questions, life and death, and who shall live and who shall die. And the Yusker and Yom Kippur has that that added weight. I think we're thinking about our own mortality on Yom Kippur in a very real mm-hmm. way, and that is the flavor of Yuskor and Yom Kippur. I think on Pesach, as you alluded to, Yuskor is about like who's not at the Seder, who do we miss uh, at the Seder, whose presence do we feel even though they're not physically uh, with us anymore, and I think that's those are the types of memories and types of thoughts and reflections that we take uh, with us to Yuskor on, on Pesach. So just not to end on a, on a sad note, as our tradition is, you know, <laughs> when there's, for example, in um, the, the Shabbat Hagadol Haftara, so it ends with like a curse, and then we read a previous Pesach again to not end that way, so our podcast also shouldn't end on a on a sad note about Yisker. <laughs> so just one idea about I mentioned before there's an obligation to be happy on holidays so that that's not kind of um, we, we like to ground things in kind of like physical activities in Judaism so being happy isn't just sort of like an emotional commandment um, we have some ideas about how to do that um, so the, the Gemara in, in Psachim describes that for men that is drinking wine and for children that is like nuts and toys and for women, it's colorful clothing, um, which I actually love because it's an excuse to shop. <laughs> and, um, and, and I love the idea that like shopping for Yantiv, new clothes for Yantiv, which I'm extremely makpida about, um, um, is, um, is actually a, a mitzvah in the Torah, um, which I think is, um, you know, is a nice way to think about some of the, we, we sometimes say, you know, oh, like our community is so, um, it's so into like Gashmi us and materialism and whatever, but if we find a way to kind of raise up our materialism and say there's actually a mitzvah in the Torah to be happy on Yantiv, and I am fulfilling that through my new clothing, and not and, and it doesn't need to be ostentatious, it doesn't need to be fancy new clothing, but for me, um, that is a way that I kind of feel happy on Yantiv as opposed to like Shabbat, it's a, it makes Yantiv feel different than Shabbat also, um, and so um, I hope we 
you know, I, I want to encourage that for everyone. You're hearing this already on Chalmawid, but... <laughs> that's, that's a, it's a, it's a, a very important uh, ending note. Uh, my uh, father-in-law, Lev was uh, had a wife and, and, and three daughters, and, and he would uh, try to buy uh, gifts of clothing for his family <laughs> uh, before Yom Tov, and they would remind him uh, to do so. I think that was an important <laughs> way that they experienced uh, Yom Tov. Um, we, we try to buy our children uh, books uh, bef- before Yom Tov, so that also again it's a simcha of Yom Tov. It also gives us something to do uh, on, on some like yes. longer Yom Tov afternoons or at the night, and um, and and obviously the the good food is also a part of our Yom Tov traditions mm-hmm. and part of how we feel joy. To end on a happy but also serious way, uh, Rambam writing about this obligation of simcha and Yom Tov, talking about giving gifts to one's family and, and making sure there's joy and good food and wine, etc., also reminds us that this uh, mm-hmm. this simcha of Yom Tov is not it isn't just the rejoicing of one's belly in his very memorable words. It's yes. also uh, a, a simcha shal mitzvah. It, it's the it, it's a mitzvah type of joy, which means that it has to include uh, those who would otherwise not feel joy, and that means we have to make sure that we are very generous with staka leading up to uh, Yom Tov. Mm. It means we uh, go the extra level in opening our home to guests who might not have a place uh, or do have a place, but will have more joy if they eat with us mm-hmm. uh, on Yom Tov. And and that's a way that our simcha is is, is a mitzvah simcha, and not not just a uh, a belly simcha or a <laughs> yeah, fancy clothes simcha. Okay, so we should have the totally. fancy clothes and the good food, and to the extent that you can afford to like invest in these things to make extra joy for yourself and your family, that's a wonderful uh, thing to do. And, and but always with that, with that ethical context in Judaism, celebration, holidays are all about making sure that we include the widow, the stranger, the orphan, uh, and whatever, and all the contemporary applications of those categories in our rejoicing. For our next section, we're here with Barry Mogul. So tell us, Barry, how did you and your family first join Anshay Shalom? We moved into the neighborhood um, in the beginning of 1990s, in 1991, um, when a member of the family had preceded us into the neighborhood before, and we decided we liked the neighborhood when she came in and we wanted to be part of the community. Uh, we sought out the nearest Orthodox shul uh, with a mechitza, if you will, and this was the place. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me in the 28 years I've been in the neighborhood uh, to come into the shul. Uh, it was the end of Rabbi Dietrich's term, so not only did I get to see the wonderful administration of Rabbi Dietrich, although not in its heyday, uh, but I got to be here for the to the incoming and the uh, administration of, uh, from the pulpit of Rabbi Asherlo Patton, and now the continued wonderful administration of Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. So tell us a little bit about what you appreciate about about this congregation in particular. The congregation embraces everybody who comes in with with an open heart. Uh, The congregation is welcoming. They will greet you. Uh, The congregation, from a person to a person, get along with each other. And they appreciate each other. They appreciate that it's the welcoming concept of the community. It's absolutely, absolutely embracing. And uh, I couldn't feel more compatible with that. Thank you. I think you you do a lot to embrace everyone who walks uh, through the doors of of our building. Uh, If somebody listens to this recording and wants to meet you, where where can he find you? Where where are you you at? Well, it's my pleasure to linger at the show a little longer after service (laughs) and not to participate in certain things. Uh, For example, I, I consider as my constituency... Uh, the um, the uh, yardside plaques, the, those those people whose neshamot represent what is represented by the yardside plaques and and the candles. It's become my honor to participate in something like that and and doing things around the shul uh, that might be helpful, putting books away or or whatnot, because 
it's my contribution back to the shul in a more tangible form than dues or, mm-hmm. or participations. And funds are absolutely needed all the time. But I think nothing beats actual presence and participation. And it's my, my, my extreme honor to have grown into that kind of activity. And my uh, phone number and uh, email address can be made available by, by me giving the office permission to give it to you. So feel free to ask about me. And if there's anything I can do for you, please don't hesitate to let me know. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. Um, As always, we love someone recently sent us a voice note um, as feedback to one of the previous episodes. We loved that. If we get more of those, maybe we'll start, uh, you know, patching them into the to the podcast. So we love hearing feedback and questions and um, ideas for future ideas for future episodes, for sure. Um, If you have negative feedback you can um tap them out in morse code on my office window please between the hours of uh, midnight and 1 a.m yeah but not too loudly so it won't set off the alarm okay good um so morse code yes very good and thank you so much for listening we want to thank our producer Haley leventhal for all the hard work she puts into making this podcast happen Hugs, man.